0: Hello, you're listening to the Her Head and Films Podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. I'm a writer, a feminist, I love uh, literature, art, and cinema, and so I wanted to create this podcast so that I could talk about films. If you're new to the podcast, um, the title came from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago. At the time, I was really obsessed with films, as I usually am and I wrote that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so it was just a phrase that sort of stuck. And um, that's why the the podcast is titled the way that it is. So today I'm going to talk about two films. I'm going to try to keep the podcast um, as succinct um, and as short as I can. I know that some of them have gotten a bit long, <laughs> and so um, I'm going to try to just stay on point with this podcast. And um, so the first film that I want to talk about today is a film called Wajma. Um, it's a film set in Afghanistan. It's It came out in 2013, and it's directed by Barmak Akram. I really liked this film. I was drawn to it because I haven't actually seen films from Afghanistan. And I was interested to get a little bit of a glimpse into the country and what life is like there. As an American, um, I'm very aware of the um, power relation between the United States and Afghanistan. We are in a perpetual war uh, with that country. a war that I would say that most Americans don't really understand and um, it doesn't make much sense what's happening and I wouldn't say that many of us here are informed about Afghanistan or the people that live there or really know anything about it I think if if you ask people to find Afghanistan on a map I don't think they could find it so I wanted to watch this film because I wanted um To learn more about the country, and I wanted to hear, you know, a a human story. And um, so the film is called Wajma. Um, It's sort of subtitled with an Afghan love story. Um, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I'm doing this podcast right now because I'm really sad and like depressed. And I felt like maybe if I talked about films, I would feel better, so I do apologize if I sort of go silent for a moment or have to collect my thoughts. When I get depressed, um, it can be really difficult, so Wajma is about a young woman, uh, the title character. Her name is Wajma, and so is the actress that plays this character. She is having a secret, um, affair with a man named Mustafa. They meet in secret. She's very young. She's probably about 19 or 20, very naive, I would say, about love and sex. And it's actually sort of tender at times, you know, they sort of meet secretly and you can tell that she's like in love with him and eventually they do have sex and she becomes pregnant. But when she goes and tells him that she's pregnant, he basically doesn't want to have anything to do with her. He certainly doesn't want to marry her. And I think she had illusions that um, she and him would get married and would be together. Um, But obviously he didn't have those intentions. So she has to go to her family and tell them that she is pregnant. And um, her family, her father especially, is very, very upset and actually becomes violent with her. He isolates her and puts her like in a woodshed. And um, he says, you know, that she's brought shame to the family and even threatens to kill her at one point. Um, her, Her only hope really is to get an abortion, but I take it that abortion is illegal in Afghanistan. So, her family um, tries to procure a passport for her so that she can go to India and get a passport and and get an abortion. So, that's sort of the main gist of the film. It's really about a woman who is navigating a patriarchal society. I, I can't say how accurate its depiction of Afghan... You know, values or families are. It, I wonder if it may be on the extreme side. I mean, I don't know to what point, you know, uh, if every father would threaten to kill his daughter if she got pregnant. You know, I don't know that. Um, so I'm not sure how accurate its depiction of Afghan society is. Um, but obviously he does not kill her. It's it's his anger, and, you know, that that violence and that anger comes from living in a society that tells you, you know, what your daughter does, or if she gets pregnant, is a reflection on you and your family, so you have to see it within that context as well, so, um, you know, in the end, they do want her to get the abortion, and she is accepted to law school. She certainly has, like, dreams. She has the rest of her life ahead of her, and she doesn't want the pregnancy, you know, to um, to prevent her from, from pursuing those things. So, I mean, honestly, even though it's set in Afghanistan, I mean, I see connections with the United States. Even though abortion is legal here in the U.S., um, after the Roe versus Wade decision in the 1970s, um, where I live in the South, uh, the Southern United States, there is maybe one or two abortion clinics in the state where I live, and I know in Mississippi there's maybe like one, you know. And so, even though abortion is legal, it's not necessarily accessible to all women. You could definitely say that a woman here in in the United States may might have to go to another state to get an abortion, also it's a common occurrence for women to get involved with men, and for when those men find out that that woman's pregnant to leave her and abandon her. you know this is not something that is particularly unique to a Muslim society, and I certainly didn't feel like the film was sort of trading in stereotypes about Muslims or or, you know, um, a Middle Eastern country. I think it was a very powerful critique of of patriarchy, you know, and of the legislation and control over women's bodies. And you see, you know, in a very tragic way what Wajma goes through and how she is trying to survive in a patriarchal society. So... Um, it was also a very interesting glimpse into Afghanistan. I mean, I can't say that I have seen a film from Afghanistan. When I think of Afghanistan personally, from what I've seen in the media, I think of mountain ranges and caves and the Taliban. You know, I mean, that's that sort of the only image that we have. So this film was uh, sort of a revelation in a way, you know, to see to see the world of an ordinary Afghan family, you know, and to see them at a wedding, um, to see them having fun, to see them, you know, um, to see the cafes and, you know, to see their homes and, you know, to just get a glimpse into the everyday life of, of people living in Afghanistan. I think that cinema is an important um, it's an important tool in fostering a sense of empathy and curiosity. I mean, we just saw, you know, at the Academy Awards, I'm doing this podcast like in on March 5th, 2017, so the Oscars were like maybe a week or two ago. But all the nominees for the Foreign Language Oscar came together and issued this statement where they basically wrote that you know, cinema is a way to create empathy. It's a way to break down walls and borders and barriers between people. And I, I do believe that. And um, I believe that that watching foreign films... I'm not saying it makes me better than anybody, anybody else or better than, than people who don't watch foreign films. I'm not saying that. But personally, for my life, watching foreign films... Has helped to make me much more open-minded, much more um, empathetic towards other people, much more understanding, and and um, it's made me curious about other people in the world. And because I think you can get very isolated, and I think you can get fed very stereotypical images of places like Iraq, like Afghanistan, like Iran. You know, when I started watching Iranian movies, that was a big deal for me. Because Iran, the way it's portrayed here in the U.S., is, you know, you see the Ayatollah and there's this fear that is created about Iran. And I kinda bought into that at one time, you know, years ago when I was much younger. You know, I'm twenty seven right now. But when I was a teenager, you know, growing up in you know, during the Bush administration, you know, I maybe did look at the Middle East or Iran or Iraq and Afghanistan with a fear and as seeing them as other, you know, and then I started watching foreign films and started watching things about Iran. You know, like the cinema of Kuristami, who I really love. Abbas Kuristami, who died last year, Um, that opened my mind. You know, to this nation. You know that there's, you know, there's millions and millions of people, and and they're not bad. You know, they're just like me. Um, So I think foreign cinema can create that. I think it it can create those connections and and it can get you out of your bubble, you know, of 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 and really divest you of some of your assumptions about other people. And um so Wajma for me was quite a revelation and in the future I definitely want to watch more films from Afghanistan or, or that are set in Afghanistan. I think that's really important because you know, when you're able to dehumanize people it makes it much easier to engage in, in perpetual war with them. You know, we don't have to see the people that we've hurt in Afghanistan or Iraq, or even, you know, the drones that we drop in Pakistan, or um, you know, the people we kill in Yemen, you know, recently, like some children died. Of course, we don't see images of, of those people, do we? We don't see images of their grief or heartache or, or, or pain and so it makes it much easier to justify dropping those bombs and and engaging in warfare against them and you know when i really stop to think about it it just tears me apart really it's you know i am part of this government i'm part of this country that does these things and um it's so shameful and you know to know that you know, that this is what we do here in the US. We are a very destructive, hateful nation in many ways. I'm not going to say every person in the US is like that, but there we do have this benevolent view of ourselves that really is not justified, you know, in terms of what we do to other people and other countries. Um, I've gone on a tangent, but I feel like it kind of connects to the next film. So the next film i want to talk about is one that i watched recently and it's called um an encounter with simone vey and it's by julia Hazlitt. it's a documentary about the writer activist mystic philosopher um who was french simone vey now i didn't know her name was pronounced this way i thought it was vile that's what i would have said i would have said simone vile but the way that the filmmaker and basically everyone that she interviewed said Vey. So um, just know that. I mean that is the way they pronounced it and so that's the way I'm going to pronounce it. So it's Simone Vey and um, it's um it was an interesting documentary. It's very personal. It's about Simone Vey but it's also about Julia Haslip and um Hazlitt's father committed suicide when she was young and that suicide um, had you know implications for her life and also for her older brother Timothy Hazlitt who was a um, a writer and a black studies scholar and so the film is about Hazlitt's interest in Simone Vey's work. She got inspired to make the film when she read a quote by Simone Vey. It was something like um like paying attention is like the greatest gift, or I'm paraphrasing. You may know the the quote. You know, other people may have heard it, um, but it was something about how paying attention is very important. So she reads this quote and she becomes obsessed with Simon Vey and she starts to read every book that she can get her hands on about Weil. Um So it's about um, Vase's philosophy and her thoughts, especially as it pertains to human suffering. But it's also about Hazlitt's the you know, the suicide of her father and her relationship with her brother Timothy, who suffers from profound depression and anxiety. And so the connection is human suffering. It's that's the main part of Vay's philosophy that Hazlitt focuses on and And I have not read Simone Weil's work, so everything that I'm talking about and saying is what I have learned and gleaned from the documentary. So Simone Weil seemed to be someone who was very preoccupied and concerned with human suffering, with how we react to human suffering, how it's represented, um, how we change or don't change that suffering how we engage with it and so for for Julia Hazlitt, the suffering in her life is the suffering that she sees her brother going through and that she's pretty much helpless to change um, I think some people would maybe not like the personal aspects of the documentary or maybe would see it as self-indulgent but in light of Vase philosophies and writings about suffering, I did see the connection and I did see what Hazlitt was trying to do. Um, so Simone Weil was a very influential writer um, and philosopher. Um, she influenced people like Albert Camus who actually went and meditated in in Weil's room before he went to accept his Nobel Prize. Um, she influenced Susan Sontag, um, as well. And um she was someone who, as I say, i this is what I took from the documentary. If you're if you're listening and you're some kind of Simone Weil scholar, you know, or expert, and I'm getting it wrong, you know, I do apologize for that. Um but Vey seemed to be someone who was very interested in, in how we live our values that it wasn't enough to just believe things that you need to put those beliefs into your everyday life and, um, and she herself did that and she was very interested in, in as I said suffering and she enacted suffering on her body as a way to feel the suffering of other people. So for her, empathy is like bodily. It's very corporeal. And it's something that she wants to experience through her own flesh. So to that end, she does things like denying herself sugar because during World War II, she knew that soldiers didn't have access to sugar. She reduces her food intake because she knows that people in France don't have access to food. Um, she volunteers in the Spanish Civil War against Franco and, and the fascists. Um, she goes to work at a car factory in order to see what the working class goes through on a daily basis. Um, so she is someone who enacts suffering with her own body. I mean, it almost makes me think of like performance art, you know in the last few decades. um there's been a focus on pain with performance art um Oh God, the names totally escaped me, but there was this performance artist where he shot himself. There's this other artist, oh God, I think her name's Gina, but I may be wrong, where she puts like nails in her arm. She 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 does things to her body that create pain. So it kinda reminds me of that a little bit. Um maybe Simon Simone Vey Ve was um see I wanna keep saying vile. <laughs> it's veil, it's veil, even though it does not look like it's veil. Um maybe she was like the original performance artist in a way. Um but she felt like in order to write about something, in order to even think about it, she needed to experience it in the flesh and, and feel it through her own flesh. And so I think that's very, I think this film is, I'm not going to say it's a great documentary, but I do think it's a worthwhile documentary. And I was thinking about this today, about how certain films, they may not be considered the best films, but they act as catalysts and they introduce us to people or concepts or ideas that can actually become very integral to our lives. You know, for instance, I'm thinking about like Michael Cunningham's book, The Hours, which not everybody may love that film or the movie. for me that was a very important book because i read it when i was you know around 16 15 16 years old and that is the book where i discovered virginia wolf and so virginia wolf um for those of you who don't know the hours it's about three women in three different time periods and one of them is virginia wolf and um without that book i I never would have I, I mean, I'm sure I would have come across her work, but I don't know if it would have had the same impact. I don't know if if it would have, um, you know, transformed me the way it did. I've read, you know, many of Wolf's books at this point, and she's a central writer in my life, a central figure. So that book is, really acted as a catalyst for me. And so I think some films, some books, some works of art, they may not be the best in the world you know but they act as catalysts in your life and they lead you in new directions and on new paths and so i'm definitely interested in Simone Bay's work you know and i want to explore it more and um i think in this day and age when there is immense amounts of human suffering i think it's important for us to think about it, to think about suffering, to think about how do we confront suffering? How do we change it? How do we uh, protest it? How do we how do we make it visible? Because some forms of suffering become invisible and we don't see it. And so um, Hazlitt's documentary engages with those questions of suffering she shows images from Iraq, she shows images from Afghanistan and the wars that the United States perpetuates. She shows um, a protest um, that was done for uh, you know, prisoners in Guantanamo Bay. I'm gonna take just a quick break. I'll be right back. Just give me one second. You wanna get out? it out. Thanks. All right. Okay. That was my dog. <laughs> he wanted to be let out. Um, so suffering is, like, I was watching the news today, and, um, it's March 5th, 2017, and they were talking about how there's famine going on in Yemen, and in Eastern Africa, in places like Sudan, and Somalia, even places like Nigeria, and how, like, millions of people are at risk of it, that... Like, I think in Somalia or Sudan, like, a hundred people just died the last few days from famine. That the famine is used as a weapon of war. Um, um, That it's really a man-made famine, not necessarily a nature-made famine. And they showed images of starving people. And it's like, well, and I just sort of sat there and and, like, tears came to my eyes because... What do i do what do i do um the suffering that i see just recently a man was murdered in kansas by someone by a white man it was okay i'm not saying all right. an indian man was murdered in kansas by a white man in a bar who said get out of my country and the indian man's widow posted a, a very long message on facebook where she talked about her husband, you know, and the man that she loved, and how they wanted to have children, and and what kind of person he was, and how kind he was, and um, and I read it, and my heart hurt like it was painful, and I just, you know, or we hear about immigrants being deported and families being torn apart. Now, of course. That's not new. You know, President, you know, Barack Obama deported millions of immigrants over the course of his administration. But there are ways in which certain kinds of suffering are visible and invisible. And when it's visible, you know, it's hard to watch and it's hard to look at. And I think Simone Veil would ask us, what are we doing about it? You know? she protested she was an activist she enlisted in the spanish civil war she wanted to be a spy during world war ii i think they were thinking about sending her back to france she moved to the u.s in the 1940s early 40s i think um you know as hitler started to take power and she knew that her family was at risk but she wanted to go back to france and she wanted to be part of the french Resistance against the Nazis. So I think they would ask us very pointed questions about our own complicity and what we are doing and what we are not doing when it comes to human suffering. And um, I think about it all the time, I think about whose lives matter, you know, we see the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, and I think about whose lives get grieved and whose lives get seen and whose lives get cared about and um, how do we engage with human suffering you know we are in you know I mean just I think about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and all the suffering that we've caused and how we are not as Americans made to look at that suffering you know it's hidden from us, that suffering. It's not visible to us. And and because it's invisible, we continue to create this American myth of our exceptionalism and our goodness. And we're not made to confront the darker parts of our country. And I think with the election of, of Donald Trump and the rise of fascism and the rise of white supremacy, I think a lot of people who maybe thought those things were in the past or they weren't a problem anymore are forced to look and say, maybe we're not as great as we thought we were, you know. And so I think human suffering is a huge deal. <laughs> it's it's an important it's an important thing to talk about and to think about. And I think with this documentary, it will. It will continue to make me think. And I also want to share this quote, um, a really great thing that Julia Haslett did was she was able to interview some people that actually knew Simone Weil. And these people really had not been interviewed before. It's, it's kind of shocking. You know, as influential as Simone Vey is, it's kind of shocking that like people haven't been interviewed that knew her, you know? But she was a teacher at one point, and she told her student, and Haslett interviewed the student, and she said to her, um, Simone Vay said to the student, always do what will cost you the most. Always do what will cost you the most. That is what they believed. You, know, that you have to put your life on the line, your body on the line. I don't think that's possible for everybody to do. You know, some people have disabilities. Some people have mental illness. They're just trying to survive day by day. But she put her body on the line. She went to work in a factory. This was an interesting part of the documentary to, that she talked about was Simone Veil going to this factory, this car factory, and working. And um, for some reason, she had had this romanticized view of factory work. And, um, but when she went and actually worked it and did the work, she realized that it was dehumanizing, that it was a form of almost slavery and submission, that the worker, the factory worker, was made to, you know, shut up and be submissive. And, um, and that they weren't, and that it's very hard for what she got out of it, partly, was that in order for people to revolt, in order for people to protest and fight back, they actually need time to think. They need to be able to like think and process. But when you're a factory worker or you have a very difficult job, you are almost like a machine. You know, it's all about speed. It's all about how much you do. And you don't have time to think. You, You don't have a life. You know, you are just a worker. You are just a number. And that sort of resonated with me because when I was like 18 or 19, I actually worked at a factory. And um, it was a very brutal experience. And um, I I live in a rural area of the South. And, you know, there's just not a lot of jobs. A lot of the small towns in the rural areas, especially after the economic recession of 2008, have really been gutted. And um, a lot of manufacturing jobs have left. And... And um, a lot of people struggle to find work. And my mom worked at a factory, and so she was able to get me a job working there. And um, it was just, it was so dehumanizing. You really were a number. You were reduced to how much you produced in a given day. And if you weren't fast, and you were just, it was all about speed, it was all about speed. And if you couldn't keep up, then you were shamed you were publicly shamed for it and humiliated for it. And I made minimum wage, like seven dollars an hour, seven twenty five an hour. And that was my first job out of high school. This was in like two thousand eight. And I just remember getting my paycheck, you know, making minimum wage and of course they take taxes out and they take different stuff out and it's like you got paid every two weeks and it was just I could. I looked at that check, and I was like, what? Like I had done all that work, you know, eight hours a day going in there. There were no windows. It was it, the sound of the machines going all day, and it was just soul sucking. It was soul killing that kind of environment, and it was, and it just ruined my health. Even to this day, my health is just terrible because of what I went through at that factory, and um. And I actually lost that job because of the recession in 2008. You know, the the recession hit in 2008, 2009, and I was let go from that job. um, So, But my father had died a few years earlier in 2006, and we needed money. You know, I I, I didn't go to college right out of high school. Um, I just wasn't able to. Like, my mom was a single mom, and... He died when I was 16 in, in 2006, and so we were basically plunged into poverty because of it. And so I had to go work at this factory, and but um, eventually I did go to college in about in around 2010. You know, it took me a little while. I was about 20 when I went to college. And I went because I didn't want to do that job again. I didn't want to work in a factory ever again. And um, so I did go to college and, and study literature and stuff but I mean I have a degree now but I still struggle to find a job so it's just it's a difficult economy especially in rural areas and I know I've gone on a tangent but it's just because watching the film and that scene in particular about the factory work I could absolutely relate to what Simone Weil was saying, you know, that about what capitalism and what factory work does to people's lives, what it does to their bodies, there is real suffering inflicted on people through these jobs, through these very repetitive uh, jobs. And so um, Simone Weil was someone who just seemed like she was very tapped into the suffering that people go through and that she wanted to try to feel that suffering or um, understand that suffering you know and I think that's an important thing and maybe if we had more empathy and we could try to understand what people suffer and what they go through maybe that would make us more humane maybe it would make us more political you know maybe it would. you know maybe if we saw this suffering or experienced a bit of it ourselves it would it would change our views about things. I mean, I don't know, I don't know. I do know that you know the suffering that I've been through has made me extremely empathetic and compassionate for other people it It has absolutely expanded my empathy, you know that you know losing my father at a young age and living in poverty and going through health issues and you know the breakdown of your body the destruction of your body and having mental illness like anxiety and depression like i have you know it's that suffering makes me very empathetic for other people and i want a world that treats all of us like human beings i want a world that is humane and and has justice, you know, and and gives people, every person a chance, and gives every person their rights, you know, and, and um, where we don't wage these perpetual wars, where everybody's taken care of, and everybody's life matters, you know, but as we know, everybody's life doesn't matter, you know, that's why people are fighting, like in the Black Lives Matter movement, to To they're fighting for their lives, you know what I mean? So, um, so I'm very intrigued about Simone Bay and I want to learn more about her. And I have her book, um, The Abolition of All Political Parties, the New York Review of Books Classics recently reissued it. And I would definitely like to read it. And, um, this film as I said earlier, it's about Hazlitt as well as Vae. And unfortunately, Timothy, you know, her older brother does end up dying. Um, it's not clear if it was um, if it was an accidental overdose or if it was a, a purposeful suicide, but he does end up dying. And so Hazlitt herself has to personally confront um, the suffering that she witnessed her brother go through and it was a suffering that she was pretty much powerless to change you know so you there's there's a tragic element to it and of course Simone Weil died under sort of um, tragic circumstances she um, contracted tuberculosis and she sort of didn't eat a lot she really limited her food intake because of she only wanted to eat as much as what people in Europe were eating cuz she was in the US when she died and so she really didn't eat enough she kind of starved herself and and that did contribute to her death so um so she came to a tragic end as well and that's really sad And ultimately, as I said, this this film leaves me thinking a lot about suffering. And um, when I ask myself, you know, what does it mean to live in, in this world that is so damaged and so dark? A world where it's painful to stay and it's painful to leave. Um, you know, there's no right choice. You know, some people want to leave the world and some people... Or, or stay in it and try to fight, you know, for a better a better tomorrow, a better world, but it's very difficult these days. It's, I would say it's a pretty bleak time. I'm trying to hold on to hope, but I would say it's a pretty dark time, and um, I think a lot of people are struggling with how to navigate the world right now but i may read Simone bay um, i may read uh, the abolition of all political parties i do have a book podcast now it's called her head in books so i wanted to reuse you know the film um her head in film title and because i think that they're sort of connected or interconnected because i really love books and i really love films and they're they're very central to my life and they're very important to me and so i like having two podcasts where i can i can explore that and so if i do read the simone bay book i will probably talk about it in the podcast but um i think it is a worthwhile documentary and it is free right now on on a on a site called voodoo v-u-d-u i'll put the link up um you can watch it for free with ads in, in the United States. I don't know if Voodoo is accessible to people outside the United States. But um, I think if you're interested in Vae's work, or if you're just curious about her like I was, I knew about her. I'd heard about her. And so I just thought, well, I'll give it a chance. You know, why not learn a little? And I feel like I watched a really profound documentary. I didn't love everything about it. You know, it wasn't perfect. But I felt like. I felt like I got to know a writer that I didn't know a lot about and that as I said the film could act as a catalyst um for me to explore more of her work and and to think about some of these really large issues, you know, about suffering and how you live your own values, you know, how you you know, we have these principles, we have these lofty ideas, especially if you're like me and you're a feminist or you're a progressive, you know, and you have strong political beliefs, but how do you enact those things in your everyday life? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Simone Bay was someone that really lived her beliefs, you know, and she went to the edge. She, she did what made her suffer and, and what was hard on her. She didn't, She didn't go easy on herself or her body and she died when she was 34. You know, it's I don't know if everybody can live that way, but I think we can at least engage with these questions and these ideas. So, I do appreciate you listening. Um I tried to keep it short, but I think I went on some tangents there and I, you know, it is what it is, but um thank you for listening. I really do appreciate it.